Hello all, and welcome to Current Account with Clay Lowry, the Executive Vice President here at the Institute of International Finance. The purpose of this podcast is to bring to your attention current issues in international finance and economics, as well as provide a U.S. policy and politics angle on these different issues. Clay, over to you. Hello, and welcome to Current Account. I'm your host, Clay Lowry. I really should be saying welcome back because we took a break in August and September. I hope to start us back up again by covering many of the most important developments that affect global economics, finance, and the political economy. To explore these issues, I'm pleased and honored to be joined by my boss and the president and CEO of the Institute of International Finance, Tim Adams. Tim has been in that role for roughly a decade, and previously he has been a successful entrepreneur and a very high-ranking official for the U.S. Treasury Department, among many other responsibilities he's had over the years. Tim, welcome to Current Account. It's great being here, Clay. I thought you'd never ask. So thank you for finally getting around to me. Thank you, Tim. (laughs) In this conversation, I really do hope to cover some very pretty easy uh, things for him to answer. You know, he is my boss regarding such easy subjects as the world economic outlook, geopolitics, sustainable finance, digital finance, and the vulnerabilities in emerging markets. I figured that should be really easy for Tim to cover in 30 minutes. So let's just jump right in. Tim, you have been traveling over the last few months to New York, to Europe, to Asia, meeting with top executives and high-level policymakers. Moreover, next week, the IMF and the World Bank, as well as the G20 and G7, will be convening finance and central bank officials from around the world to discuss a number of issues. And we here at the IIF will be hosting our annual membership meeting at the same time. So let's just do some previewing. What are some of the big themes that are shaping up these discussions, uh, some of the major takeaways that you have? And given that you are an optimist, let me take you out of your comfort zone and ask you, what should we be worried about? Well, Clay, it's good to be back on the road. You know, after being stranded for close to two years at home and trying to learn virtually, I I found that it was fine, but limiting. And I, I learned by going and doing and seeing it's boots on the ground. It's talking to taxi drivers and and seeing our, our clients and seeing uh, policymakers in their offices or in other locations. So I find it rewarding to be back uh, on the road and I find it enriching. And also I'm looking forward to our annual meetings uh, coming up. It's good to be back in person and have policymakers back with us in person. You know, look, these are extraordinary times. And everyone says that every, it's the conceit of every, every grouping, every generation but this is extraordinary. The shocks that we have uh, been whipsawed through over the last couple of years are, are pretty phenomenal. You know, COVID and coming out of COVID and understanding what is the new normal, and then the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which is uh, which has rolled uh, energy markets uh, and, and continue to just the you know looking at uh, OPEC's decision to take two million barrels out, which is a continuation of concern about energy security and energy affordability. But uh, the C-suites are worried about a variety of things. What is the new normal? How do we get there? We've had a long period of uh, real negative rates. Uh, we've had a long period of significant liquidity and lots of fiscal support. Economy has been running on a sugar high for a number of years. Well, we're going to take the sugar away. Rates are going to go higher. As you see, central banks are pushing rates higher really quickly at a historical pace, taking liquidity out of the system. Uh, and as we do that, we're going to see things pop. We're going to find out where are the weaknesses in the system, uh, and uh, and we're going to find that out pretty rapidly. Fortunately, the banking system has a lot of liquidity, a lot of capital, uh, a lot of corporates, especially in the U.S. and major corporates globally, pretty solid balance sheets. 
But there are weaknesses in the system, and we're going to find out where those weaknesses are in the coming weeks and months. Okay, thank you very much. All right, so let's kind of dive down a little bit. And I kind of, you made the really good point about geopolitics. The idea of not thinking about geopolitics when we think about economic outlook, I mean, if that wasn't a mistake in the past, it clearly is a mistake now. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has shaken up global energy markets, as you noted. It has catalyzed a food crisis, exacerbated inflation, and unfortunately, it could drive a number of regions around the world into recession. And that's just Russia. Let me just add, just before you answer, let me add China to that. What is happening there? Maybe get your juices flowing a little bit. So kind of Kind of two things, really. What is the? How do you see the Russian impact, particularly on Europe, but also kind of what do you see going on in China right now? Yeah, uh, Clay, uh, absolutely on on the geopolitics. You know, we were allured into this sense of complacency. I think after the end of the Cold War and you know the Francis Fukuyama perspective about the end of history. I think a lot of people are going back and reading Fukuyama now to better understand what did we get wrong because it wasn't the end of history. Uh, history is reasserting itself. And as Churchill once said, the history of humanity is the history of conflict. And we're seeing conflict. We're seeing it in the eastern parts of, of, of uh, Ukraine with the Russian invasion, which has had an incredibly profound effect on Europe, uh, especially energy prices. I was just in Germany and, and the Czech Republic a few weeks ago. There are 70,000 people pro protesting in Prague because of the uh, high energy prices. Uh, the people I talked to in southern Germany were worried about a very cold winter. You talk, I talked to a number of industry leaders in Germany. They're certainly worried about uh, energy affordability. So uh, we have a pretty pessimistic outlook for, for Europe uh, over the coming year. And actually, uh, our chief economist and our house view on the global economy is pretty pessimistic as well. We see a global recession coming. I heard the Kristalina uh, uh, Georgieva today uh, giving the fund view, which sounds a lot like our own, so highly pessimistic. And it, you mentioned China. China is such an important driver of growth and has been for decades. I think we're going to see growth this year in China at around 2.5%. I don't really like point estimates, but I'll use one. That may be the slowest growth in China since 1976, which was the year that Mao died. So as a driver of growth, uh, an important you know driver of the delta of growth, uh, having China at that uh, at that pace is one that you know indicates a, a broader set of challenges globally. Excellent. Okay, let me kind of switch it then. You've had to deal with this for a number of years, um, but it seems like it's becoming more and more important, which is to try to think about sustainable finance. They are key priorities uh, in the financial sector, and sometimes it feels like even they are dominating the news, despite everything you just said about geopolitics. One conversation is about global regulation. International bodies are considering ESG disclosure rules, creating green taxonomies to ensure consistency and transparency, trying to think about capital charge issues, etc. A different conversation is taking place, which is probably taking place a lot more in the United States than elsewhere, which is sort of a political backlash surrounding ESG investing. We see individual states in the United States making comments and thoughts about kind of pushing back against financial institutions that are too forward-leaning, and I put, I put those words in quotes, on ESG issues. So as we head into October, Tim, and to the COP27 meetings that will be taking place in November in Egypt, what are some of your thoughts on both the key regulatory issues, which is a kind of a technical issue, but also the political perspective, particularly in the United States? Yeah, Clay, it's, it's a fascinating topic, and we've had a front row seat now for many years. And, you know, our initial engagement on all things climate sustainability driven was 
was really uh, originated with our European institutions. Europe has been uh, the leader in thinking about climate change, uh, uh, climate policy, and there's much more societal cohesion and acceptance of the need for policies, uh, uniform policies across Europe. So our European institutions have been leading, but the rest of the world is, is quickly coming along, albeit at different, different paces. You know, I went to COP26 last year in Glasgow, which is a fascinating event. I've never been before, and I've never been invited before. But I never knew uh, financial uh, industry leaders uh, showing up for that. And there were many. Just walking the hallways, you ran, ran into a number of our board members and other leaders. And it, it really showed the commitment the industry has to being an important uh, player and in intermediating what will be tens of trillions of dollars necessary to make the transition uh, by mid-century. And so the industry will play a large role. We'll, we will play a large role uh, as part of an, an industry effort and as, a, and as an advisor to and a representative of the industry. But it's not without challenges. The definitional challenges, taxonomy challenges, what is green? There's 24 different taxonomy regimes around the world. Well, what is green? Even in Europe, where they have a fairly coherent, cohesive, and fairly large uh, uh, taxonomy uh, effort, uh, is nuclear green or isn't it? In Paris, it is. In Berlin, it isn't. Is gas a transition uh, of fuel and therefore green? Uh, some think it is. Some think it isn't. So it's very difficult. Uh, we don't necessarily need one uh, taxonomy, but 24 is far too many. Disclosure, uh, materiality versus double materiality. There's a huge transatlantic split on how we think about uh, the materiality at, uh, issue. And it's important in, in the United States because of issues of legal liability and the way in which the SEC will take up the topic in terms of disclosure. But even in the U.S., and you alluded to this, there is some backlash to the SEC label, which I, I find somewhat fascinating, given that the label itself has been in use for about 20 years. And But it's become controversial. It's become a symbolic uh, for many uh, across the country as, uh, as representative of, of woke. Uh, corporate political you know, intervention. I, 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 don't, I don't agree with that, but it's certainly a potent political force. And as you said, a number of states, Texas, West Virginia, Louisiana, just the last couple of days have been pushing back. And if you think about a place like Texas, Texas collects 20, 20 or $25 billion a year in royalties and taxes from oil and gas. That's huge. It's made the University of Texas one of the most highly endowed universities in the world. And so even if it's not about just the basic business, the millions of people who work in oil and gas up and down the, the supply chain, uh, there are huge revenue implications for many of the states. So the idea that, that uh, in the United States, they were simply going to turn off the spigots, they were going to shut down oil and gas, that were going to defund the states uh, is just uh, absurd. So we need, uh, we need a, a transition, a true transition, a just transition. We need to run two parallel systems, one that continues to produce uh, fossil fuels to fund our economy. And we've learned with the Russia crisis uh, that uh, voters and citizens want affordability and they want uh, energy security. At the same time, we need to uh, build uh, in the trillions that will be necessary to build an alternative system of, of energy production, energy supply. Well, thank you very much. And that is a lot. Um, so if I, um, I did say I want to get to a few issues. So I'm going to switch to another big issue that is hitting the financial sector, which is the increasing interest in digital assets. Basically, over the summer, we witnessed what people called the crypto winter. And more re recently, we are seeing regulatory proposals coming out of Europe, the United States, Japan, Hong Kong, as well as from international standard setters, such as the Basel Committee for Banking Supervision, which is um, 
one of the subsections of the BIS. Most of this relates to crypto assets and to stable coins, but, continue, but there is continuing work on central bank digital currencies, which are nicknamed CBDCs. Despite all of this work, there's still a lot of uncertainty. How do we go forward from a regulatory supervisory perspective? So Tim, as you've been having your conversations with financial leaders across the public and the private sectors, what are the major concerns that you hear and you have any thoughts about where you see this going? Clay, great question. You know, uh, 36 months ago, our member firms, our board, uh, uh, approached this topic, crypto assets generally, with, with great caution because there wasn't a lot of understanding. Everyone knew the power of the technology, but wasn't quite clear uh, how we would deploy this technology, what the actual products uh, would look like. Over time, uh, we've seen uh, an evolution of this, these products with new entrants into the marketplace, of the, the names we all know. And we have actually uh, brought into our membership you know, some really leading institutions uh, in, in the space. So we as an institution have evolved, our member firms have evolved in their, in their views. And I think the, the marketplace has evolved, as has the regulatory community. Uh, each jurisdiction has taken a different approach. The challenge is it doesn't fit into any neat regulatory box. And if you're the JFA, JFSA in Tokyo, where you have broad-based regulatory authorities, that doesn't matter as much as it does in Washington, where you have a fairly fragmented system where you have the SEC that has a particular point of view about what is a crypto asset versus the CFTC, which may see it more as a commodity, uh, and the Fed and the OCC and the Treasury and others. So it, it depends on what jurisdiction you're in about the way in which it's treated regulatorily. And then the Basel Committee and the FSB is also trying to bring in some sort of blanket uh, cross-jurisdictional approach. But we're still sorting out what is this technology? How should we think about it? And there's great concern about volatility, about uh, safety and soundness and about consumer welfare. And so do you wanna bring this technology and these products into the regulated system where you can actually see it and, and, and regulate it, but are you sufficiently worried that it might prove disruptive and undermine safety and soundness and therefore you want it out of the regulated system, but with line of sight, as Leo said at the Fed. So we don't know, we're working through it, uh, we being the, the, the broader community. And I would think uh, that it will come in iterations the Bowles Committee's already put out a couple of different statements and papers. I suspect we'll see multiple uh, analysis and views over the coming months and years. And then on CBDCs, we see the Europeans moving ahead quite rapidly. I think the U.S. is years away from a digital currency. So again, different speeds depending on the jurisdiction. And we just have to make sure that the, the design is fit for purpose and doesn't disintermediate the banking system. And, and I, I don't think central banks want to be in the retail banking business. But we just need to ensure that that disintermediation doesn't happen because it has profound impl implications for the industry, the way in which we de deliver financial products, and the way in which we conduct monetary policy. Thanks, Tim. And finally, let me. Um, so we are at the Institute of International Finance, which got started roughly 40 years ago. And it got started a lot because of what was then called the Latin debt crisis. So let's talk about debt because next week the IMF and World Bank are going to be meeting. We're sitting in a situation where vulnerabilities for emerging markets have clearly increased as financial conditions have tightened, the dollar has been rising. We've seen, obviously, specific countries, Sri Lanka being a very good example, that have gotten themselves into trouble. So the concern is, are we on the verge of another emerging markets debt crisis or, or uh, for lower income countries debt crisis? 
And if so, what is it that we should be thinking about or doing in terms of helping uh, these countries? Yeah, Clay, well, you worked on these issues a lot longer than I have. So, you, you know, I, I'm going to put the question back to you after I opine for a moment. But, uh, you know, it, it, you're right. Our origin story at the IF is, is the Latin America debt crisis. We were the creditor committee to negotiate the outcome of that. And people like Bill Rhodes, who's still around, were uh, important drivers of that process. But, you know, the world has changed. And the idea that you get a handful of banks at a table with a sovereign and work it out is radically different. The number and nature of the creditor base has grown enormously. It's not just banks, but it's capital markets and it's you know commodity firms and others that are potential drivers of debt and providing credit. And I think, unfortunately, we have over the time labeled these sectors, developing countries, emerging markets, and treat them almost as a homogeneous asset class, when in fact, they're all uniquely different. Uh, Sri Lanka is different from Afghanistan, which is different from Chad, which is different from Madagascar. And I think that by giving these broad labels, we undermine the, the idea of the complexity of each of these countries, their, their profiles, their history, and their uh, peculiar situations. And so part of it is just greater complexity, greater breadth of creditors, types of, cred of credit that's been issued, a greater opacity. Uh, we simply don't know uh, in terms of uh, a lot of these liabilities. There have been new players uh, in terms of bilateral assistance. The Chinese have been, you know, the biggest provider of credits in many developing emerging markets over the past decade. And the, the number of borrowers has also changed. It's not just the sovereigns, it's sub-sovereigns and it's uh, non-financial corporates. So it's a very different world than, you know, 1982 or 1983. But one thing that is the same is that we've seen a huge surge in debt over the past 10 years. We're now at 350% of GDP globally, 300 trillion, that's with a T. Uh, we're up 45 uh, basis points uh, since uh, 2010. And the emerging markets, it, we're at 100 trillion, up 65 trillion. Again, that's with a T. So we've seen a huge surge in debt. And debt by itself is not a bad thing as long as you can service it. And the question is, do we have the economic capacity? Are we making wise investments or countries and sub-sovereigns and corporates making wise investments that generate cash flow to, to service that debt? So the challenge, Clay, and, and you know, is that there was a time where we had so-called debt crises every 20 years. Now they seem to occur every three years. And sometimes I wonder if policymakers aren't a little uh, anxious to want to uh, have a, a jubilee uh, moment uh, from the historical setting of, of debt relief. And uh, and I, I, I worry about that kind of approach because I go back to the climate change uh, point we made earlier. We're going to require trillions of dollars in investment in many of the developing emerging world uh, uh, economies to make the transition, to decarbonize, find a different uh, source of energy, and to build resiliency against climate change. If we make these countries uninvestable because every 36 months we declare a, a global broad-based uh, uh, debt crisis, those countries will not make the transition. They are, the, and they are and they will be the principal source of greenhouse gas emissions over the coming years and decades. So we're undermining our own efforts. Uh, we just need to be thoughtful, uh, cautious. We need to take uh, each country on a case-by-case -case basis. But we need to understand this is not 1980s. It's a very different world. Yeah, I would, let me just add to that. I, I, the main thing I would think about is, one, it would be good every now and then that we get the kind of, the, what are some of the borrowing countries actually thinking about here? Because 
trying to get their opinions because they are the ones who need to figure out how do I get private finance? I can't just be reliant on official sector finance. And if I don't handle this correctly, or if I get caught up in kind of the some momentum as opposed to a case-by-case approach, then I might actually harm my own self in the in the medium term. Secondly, I think that your point about opacity is a very good point and the kind of the focus on greater transparency that we at actually IIF, but others have looked at is something we got to continue to work on. And then third, and I, I've said it, you kind of said it, which is a lot of this really is going to be case by case. Uh, you can't, one size just doesn't fit all. I mean, we've tried one size fits all over many number of years. It just doesn't really work. If you want the whole system to work as well as possible for borrowing countries, then I think that you're going to have to keep working at a case by case. That doesn't mean we can't make fixes and try to make things more efficient, um, but it is uh, hard to kind of come up with this easy solution. Clay, and, and, and you make a good point. I think it's worth emphasizing. We, we've heard from numerous countries themselves this request to be, essentially be left alone. They want access to private markets and private capital. They need trade finance. They need it to finance uh, intermediate goods. They need it for uh, project finance. They're looking through these cycles. And oftentimes policymakers get so caught up in, in, in the, the click lights and the headlines of today's crises, they don't understand how do we look through the cycle and think about how do we come out. The finance ministers, central bankers in many of these countries, many of them well-trained, they've been, they understand what the needs of their country. And they're looking to how do they exit this, this cycle and they need private capital. And oftentimes their voices are just simply not heard. The folks here in Washington or in London or other places sort of shout them down and say, no, no, we know better than you do. And I'm heartened by hearing from many of the capitals around the world of those individuals taking ownership and control of their future. They know what they need and we need to listen to those voices. Now I'd like to wrap up with what we call the three, two, one. Since I haven't done this for a while, it is three takeaways from today's program. Two things that I'm looking forward to, and my one, sports fact. Three takeaways. First, those that want to ignore geopolitics when thinking about economic outcomes are making a mistake. From the Russian invasion of Ukraine to the tensions that have grown between the United States and China, it's become impossible to tune out geopolitical landscape when looking at the economic outlook. Next, sustainability and digital finance continue to be areas of importance to the financial industry and the regulatory world. There are a number of disagreements out there, and we need to just continue to find and look for ways to avoid fragmentation. And third, conversations about debt and emergency financing to indebted emerging markets are going to play a big role at the IMF and World Bank annual meetings. We will likely see advocacy for emergency financing and reversals on food export restrictions to aid impoverished countries. The debt conversation is also complicated by China's role, as Tim mentioned, And a global policy solution on debt restructuring will need to bring all players, including China, to the table. But my guess is case-by-case solutions are going to be the way forward. The two things that I'm watching out for are, first, related to the conversation we had about inflation. Did the Fed wait too long to address inflation? And now that it is addressing inflation, is it going too far? So we'll be watching over the next few months as the Fed tries to figure out whether or not to make an adjustment on its interest rate trends, do they keep hiking, or do they start slowing down because of concerns that it might have an impact on a downside impact on the economy? And the second thing I'm looking forward to is actually the Institute of International Finance's annual membership meeting, which is taking place from October 10th 
through the 14th. There are a lot of exciting conversations that will be had. Tim actually will be engaged in many of them with significant players such as Christine Lagarde, who's the president of the European Central Bank, Anna Botin, who's the executive chairperson at Banco Santander, Jamie Dimon, who's the chairperson and CEO of JP Morgan, and Hirohiko Kuroda, who's the governor of the Bank of Japan. Finally, let me talk about my one sports fact. There are so many great sports events, games, accomplishments that have taken place in just the past couple months, including the retirement of iconic tennis stars like Serena Williams and Roger Federer. But I want to focus instead not on iconic people, but on an iconic moment. And that is Aaron Judge and what he just did. He is the outfielder for the New York Yankees, which is by far the most successful franchise in U.S. Major League Baseball for well over the last century. He beat the American League home run record on October 4th by hitting his 62nd home run. This is iconic because it beats the record that Roger Maris had, who is most famous, actually, for taking down the record that was set originally by Babe Ruth, who did it all the way back in 1927. These are the only three men to hit 60 or more home runs in Major League Baseball in one season without any hint of taking illegal performance-enhancing drugs. To show how extraordinary Aaron Judge's accomplishment is, besides the fact that he got over 60 home runs, note that the second place person in the home run chase this year has less than 40 home runs. This is the biggest gap since Babe Ruth was doing it in the 1920s. On a side note, as wonderful as it was to see Judge hit his 60-second home run, I privately admit that I was hoping he got stuck at 61. This is not because I don't like the Yankees. It is mainly for my love of numbers. He would have tied Roger Maris's 61 home runs that Roger Maris set in 1961, which happens to have been 61 years ago. But Aaron Judge defied my wishes as he defied the record books this year, and it really is an amazing accomplishment. Anyway, thank you very much. Thanks to Tim Adams for joining us this week, and we will try to get back on a regular schedule. If you have thoughts on how to make this podcast better, please send them in to us. We will always consider them. And heck, we'll probably even implement them. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Current Account with Clay Lowry. We'd love to hear from you, so please feel free to provide us any feedback or ideas about the show as we're always looking to improve and make these episodes fun and relevant for the audience. You can provide feedback at podcast at iif.com. Make sure to tune in Monday for our next episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Thanks for listening.